0: Dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to give you a new way to get in touch with us. Podcast at LincolnProject.us Send us your questions, your comments, your thoughts on our shows, any ideas you might have for guests, or anything else you want to share with us. I hope you'll take advantage of it. Let us know what you're thinking. Podcast at LincolnProject.us And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Maggie Severance, investigative and domestic policy reporter with Grid. Prior to Grid, she was a reporter for Politico, where she covered the Trump presidency, the Me Too scandals of 2017, the government's response to COVID-19, and much more. She's a graduate of Dartmouth. And in her previous life before journalism, she was a researcher and high school teacher in the Republic of the Marshall Islands, which I'm going to ask you about. Today, she's coming to us from the far less tropical, but no less swampy Washington, D.C. Maggie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It is extra swampy today, I can confirm.
0: Well, I grew up there, so I am well aware of August in Washington, D.C., which is why I live in the mountains where the humidity is 12 percent. So before we get started on politics, tell me about the Republic of the Marshall Islands. How did you get there? You, you mentioned before we started recording that you're from Minnesota. So Minnesota and the Marshall Islands would appear to be a, not only distance wise, but also I would assume every other way about as far apart as two places could be.
1: You know, I've done so many podcasts, but I think that's the first time I've ever gotten this question. (laughs) The Marshall Islands is where the Bikini Atoll is. That's how most people would know this place. So we tested a lot of nuclear and hydrogen bombs there, but we actually still give money to the Marshall Islands. We give aid money there, and the country has decided to use some of that money to hire foreign teachers. So after college, I went to the Marshall Islands and taught English for a year which is a totally fascinating experience. I mean, it was a country that was just coming online at the time. So people were like just getting the internet. They were just starting to kind of have a sense of the global world that was out there. But the culture is still very specific to the Marshall Islands.
0: How do you get there?
1: You fly through Hawaii, you fly to Honolulu, spend the night and then there's actually one jet that basically crosses all these countries and Micronesia. So like Samoa, Guam, it'll go across the Pacific to Japan and then fly back the other day. So every other day, at least when I used to go and go back and forth a little bit, you could fly out to the Marshall Islands.
0: So it's tropical. Is it a paradise?
1: Yes and no. It's absolutely beautiful. It's that kind of castaway thing. It's these islands with sand and beautiful clear water and beautiful reefs. It's also very polluted. They don't really have a system for getting rid of waste or pollution, things like that. And increasingly, they're dealing with very high tides in the Marshall Islands. The whole country is very flat. You know, a lot of it is just 10, 15 feet above sea level. So you have all these tiny islands that are starting to get salted more often. So I think there are a lot of issues there. And actually, a lot of Marshallese people have left the Marshall Islands and immigrated to the U.S. There's a large population in Arkansas and in Hawaii. In Arkansas, a lot of folks have been working in chicken plants like Tyson's or other things like that. They're, you know, plucking and processing chickens.
0: And if you've ever been to Bentonville, Arkansas, that is a smell you can never forget. (laughs)
1: <laughs> the factory farm smell, uh, yes. right? Uh, yes. Yeah. So it's, you know, there's very little economic opportunity there. On the other hand, it's this totally unique insular place where people feel like they've lived and their families have lived for thousands of years. And you don't really get that these days. You don't get to visit many communities where people really have that sense of place.
0: Yeah. The only place I can think of in the United States that I've ever been is Alaska, right? Where folks very much identify with. Family that has been there for millennia. You know, some of our families have been here since the 1600s. Like these people have been here since 10,000 BC.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I did some reporting on the Navajo reservation in Arizona several years ago. So other, you know, I think indigenous parts of the US people can have that sense, but most of us do not.
0: Right. Well, let's fly back. It'll take us a couple of days to get back from the Marshall Islands, but let's fly back to Washington, D.C. So First question I want to ask you is, you used to write for Politico, now you're with Grid. I want to hear a little bit about Grid, but give me a sense, since you've been there, you said you've been in D.C. about a decade. I grew up there in the, you know, the 80s, early 90s. What about the town itself has changed and what about your profession has changed?
1: D.C., when I moved here, was just the Obama years were starting. There was a sense that a lot of young people were moving to the city But the city itself, I was just actually talking to someone about this. The city itself still had a little bit of that noir feel where it was very gritty. It felt like the Washington, D.C. of the movies a lot of the time. And since then, it's been, you know, the population's been climbing, gentrification's been going off. And politically, it's just launched into a completely different era. We've had the Tea Party, we've had Trump, we've just had so much change that I think there's a lot more turmoil. So the city looks better. And politically, I think most people feel a lot worse.
0: Right. So it's sort of a uh, gilded frame on the picture of Dorian Gray or something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's fascinating to, you know, as a reporter, you asked about kind of how has journalism changed? I think the sense of the stakes has changed completely for people. You know, journalism as an industry has gone through waves of kind of turmoil and gotten better and gotten worse. But I think for most people who, like myself, have covered politics, it's just These days, things feel like you're reporting on a lot of stories that again and again, it feels like a once in a generation story that you're, you know, from Trump being elected to COVID and now wherever we're seeing the right go in the U.S. It's just a lot of things that feel very monumental and very serious. Do you
0: get a sense, though, even with all of that, that there is this and I say this both from watching Republicans, Democrats, the media, the sort of hangers on is that there is in some way still this desperation for normalcy like there's this denial that everything is as insane as it is is that something that only as someone who lives 2000 miles away is saying or do you ever get a sense of that
1: yeah i think there are a few ways to look at that question part of it is just saying you know we're seeing this in the news right now if you walk around saying oh my gosh everything is so crazy every day you just get burned out on saying it and people get burned out on hearing it Also, I think there's that sense of a lot of people who have been in Washington a long time wanting to kind of hold on to what they've had. You know, Washington can be a nice place to make a living if you like politics and have a family. And I think that wanting stability to the point where you kind of cling to the idea of stability is definitely something that we see sometimes. And then you just have this question of kind of what is normal these days, you know, are people getting used to something that's completely unnormal just because you're living it?
0: Yeah, no, and just to step back a second to the stories that you all cover or that pop up on an almost daily basis that should be once-in-a-lifetime stories. I mean, the idea that, as we're learning now, that it was not just the United States Secret Service or the Department of Homeland Security, but also the Pentagon that was racing to erase texts as fast as they could in the wake of January 6th, not unlike the Nixon creep headquarters, you know, shredding documents as quick as they could when they thought the FBI was coming. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, you know, Watergate really does seem like a third rate burglary comparatively now.
1: I often think about how with Watergate, Nixon got out of the way pretty quickly once it was clear what was going on and other people were, you know, striking plea deals, all those things like that. And then the country kind of tied it up and moved on now kind of the playbook, if something bad is happening for both parties, and I think people kind of took this cue from Trump, but everyone's using it, is you just kind of hold on and ride it out, you know? And it's like, there isn't really this sense of this was wrong and now I will leave. It's more just kind of, you're going to probably not apologize. You're going to kind of, you know, I think of like Ralph Northam as being a good example. I was down when he was facing the blackface criticisms several years ago in Virginia. Everyone thought he's got to resign. He's got to resign. And he thought, I'm just going to kind of hang on to this and do the rest of my term. And he did. And people's opinion ticked back up of him.
0: Right. People have short memories, but also people, I think you're right, just move on. And was it last year? I think I had on Cass Sunstein, who wrote a book with a couple of other guys uh, called Noise. And what they saw in their research was it didn't matter if you apologized or not. Like people's opinions didn't change. You didn't get credit for apologizing was the ultimate and damaging lesson, unfortunately. So let's skip forward to some of the reporting you've done. There's this organization, there's this clubhouse, right? It's the Conservative Partnership Institute. For those of you listening who haven't heard of this, we'll call it CPI just for the sake of brevity. You're not alone. I hadn't heard of it. It was founded in 2017, and it's an organization that no one outside of Washington's ever heard. Maybe even Maggie, not a ton of people, except for those in the know, have heard of it inside of Washington. But it's become a powerful, I think, messaging machine for the MAGAverse, money-moving machine, job opportunity, you know, job placement organization. So give us a little bit of sense of, one, how you found out about this place, and two, what it is you were hoping to explore as you started doing your reporting on it.
1: CPI is one of those things that just started popping up when we were reporting. And all of a sudden, it starts to become kind of everywhere you look. And to your point about not a lot of people knowing about it, when we asked folks, you know, said, Hey, did you know that this thing that you've seen is actually part of CPI? Did you know they're doing X, Y, and Z that we can all get into? People would say, Well, isn't that mostly kind of a slush fund for people like Mark Meadows, who works there, and other former Trump folks? And the more you look at it, the more you realize that actually in the last few years, this organization, and it's run by Jim Demint, a former senator and president of Heritage Foundation. It's basically one organization, CPI, that has spun off like nearly a dozen other groups that are all doing different projects, whether it be shopping opposition research on Biden nominees and people like Katanji Brown Jackson or organizing in the states, talking to people who believe the 2020 election was stolen and training them to be poll watchers for the next election. So There are all these different groups kind of within CPI. It's its own kind of conglomerate that are definitely driving a pro-Trump ideology and one that I think helps boost the profile of people who are pro-Trump in Washington. You know, so one big thing about CPI is that they have podcast and television studios. Newsmax produced a documentary about January 6th there. Marjorie Taylor Greene reports a podcast there. So they really help elevate the profile of a lot of pro-Trump folks in addition to doing kind of more of these gritty DC operative things that I mentioned before.
0: Yeah, it was interesting when I read it because, you know, I've seen the clips of whoever pulls them and posts them to Twitter of Green and Matt Gates of Florida doing their podcasts or Lauren Boebert doing her whatever insane thing she's talking about in a given day. I was fascinated by it because I was like, where does this happen? Right. Because, I mean, I'm lucky enough to be able to record a podcast from everywhere, but this is a professional operation. They've clearly got good production staff. They've got good backdrops. Like, these are people that know what they're doing. So this is one of those things where their ability to organize not only around ideology, but the logistics, I guess, Maggie, of ideology is really something to behold. From my perspective, scary as hell, but it's something really to behold.
1: Yeah. You know, I've talked a lot to people about institution building. And it's the what's the logistics behind the ideology? How do you get people to see what's going on and what you think? And this is something that Trump really didn't have when he was elected very much, right? He ran on this kind of anti-Washington platform. He got here. Much of Republican D.C. was not very interested in pivoting to be a MAGA organization. And so... I think it's interesting seeing with CPI especially, and you also have some like Republican donor alliances, other things that are popping up in recent years that are really building more institutional support, more logistical support for pro-Trump things. And I'm saying pro-Trump things and not just Trump because he's not in D.C. right now. Right. And you have a whole organization that's supporting a lot of Freedom Caucus members and other pro-Trump politicians in Congress and helping raise their profiles.
0: Does the left have anything like this? Because it sure doesn't feel like it.
1: So CPI is an amalgamation of a bunch of different political strategies and things that we've seen before, and I think they're doing it in a new way. It's an operation that does a lot. They're raising more and more money. I think in 2019 or 2020, they had raised around $20 million, and that's just for CPI, not for the 10 other groups I mentioned that are kind of CPI spinoffs, so it's probably far more than that. You know, in the past, we've seen things like Center for American Progress on the left that does a lot of think tank stuff. They're also a source of staff for incoming administrations, things like that. We've seen donor networks on the left, things like Arabella, that really you know takes a lot of money and funnels it into a lot of different nonprofits that they've helped spin off. And CPI, what that really is, is kind of all of the above. You know, it's putting a bunch of these different political strategies together and making something new.
0: And this is where you see, like you mentioned, Cleta Mitchell, who her claim to fame or infamy, I guess, was that she was the attorney on the phone with Donald Trump when they called Brad Raffensperger in late 2020 and said, I just need you to find me 11,801 votes. She is now out in the country doing all of this stuff, I think under the auspices of a charitable organization to create poll watchers and people who will actually go to different precincts and do this stuff. And she gives these speeches, but to say that they're nonpartisan or for the greater good is, She is clearly trying to find MAGA-type supporters who will go and do these jobs. And I think that's really, Maggie, the difference to me when I ask about the left is, as we've tried to tell so many of the Democratic people that we talk to, is like, you have to understand like these people are well-organized, they're well-resourced, and they're relentless. They are in all places all the time. And the idea that you have one central hub that also accounts for all of the different, not only strategies, but gradations of the sort of Trumpy, New right ideology, right? Center for American Progress, fine, yeah, they provide staff, but that's a governmental function almost, right? That's sort of helping build a government where these people, to your point, are building the sort of Jenga game of whatever the Trumpist ideology in this country wants to be.
1: I think it can be easy to, and this is something we've seen, easy to dismiss people like Cleta Mitchell or Trump himself or other people because their ideas seem kind of wacky or they're kind of faux pas or, you know, things that happen. I think that looking at something like CPI and other, you know, reporting I've done about people like Patrick Byrne, who's a big election denier, he's the former CEO of Overstock, these people who seem kind of quasi-legitimate can actually get a lot done and can do a lot, right? They're, like you said, are well-resourced and organized. And, you know, with Mitchell, the kind of big test run for what Mitchell and some other folks are trying to do this year was last year in Virginia. And it was interesting to talk to election administrators last year in Virginia and get their take on what this was like, because they're used to having people come into their offices and observe. They're used to getting public records requests. They're used to having poll watchers. And what one of these folks said to me that really stood out to me was that this was like, you know, he'd been doing this for decades. Having these people come in who were trained by Mitchell and others, it was unlike anything he had ever seen because it was the first time the people coming into his office were convinced that he and his colleagues were doing something wrong. And they were kind of monitoring and looking for just wrong things and flooding them with public records requests and ultimately making it harder to do their job. But then at the same time, I think that it's easy to reinforce an idea that elections are fraudulent so kind of getting the training and really working on this and believing an election was stolen can help lead to believing more elections will be stolen well and also
0: as we've seen with you know a lot of the election laws that have been passed in many states many frankly southern republican states is in a place like Texas right making it easier for election observers to sort of move around unfettered making it more difficult for elections workers to Hold those people to account, take them out, do whatever it is. Where the election worker would actually be criminally liable, right? So this stuff doesn't just end. And then Heritage is out there. Then you've got the sort of party committees that are doing this stuff. So it's really just this constellation of different groups. But let's go back to Byrne. You know, he's the Overstock guy. I think he wasn't he wrapped up with that Maria Butina, the Russian spy.
1: Yes, that was kind of the first time I think a lot of people noticed Patrick Byrne was that he resigned from Overstock and disclosed as he was resigning that he had had this relationship. And he maintained and still maintained that he was actually working on behalf of the FBI to collect information from Russia. But we haven't seen outside corroboration of that.
0: And then there's the pillow guy. There's Richard Uline of Chicago, the family from New York who backed Bannon for so long, the Mercers. What are these folks' motivations to get so involved so deeply in this?
1: You know, I covered campaign finance for several years at Politico. I've talked to a lot of political donors. I think that they all come from different directions. A lot of the time, everyone has their own why. Um, I talked to Patrick Byrne a lot for this story. And based on those conversations, he's someone who's a believer, right? He really wants to fix the election system, which he believes has been gravely undermined. He also I think, has really built a life around this at this point and built a big following. He has, I think, 100,000 or so followers on Telegram. He has his own private social network. So I think that this has become really a vocation for him, which is different than someone like Richard Uline. He's someone who really came from conservative politics and has been backing conservative politicians, Tea Party politicians, people like that for several years. And that was kind of his in, coming from wanting to elect powerful Republicans who are kind of in line with his conservative views. And then as we've all seen that kind of morphed into pro-Trump spending.
0: Well, it's interesting too, because so many of these folks who give these seven, even eight figure contributions cycle in and cycle out, let's just talk about like a presidential campaign or to a national party. Like, what do they want? I really want to be ambassador to Spain. Like there's some sort of Personal glory that comes along with it. But these people are much more down in the weeds when it comes to their spending. Remember that Uline, in I believe in 2020, pumped money into the Club for Growth, another very conservative super PAC, who subsequently went in and helped Lauren Boebert in Colorado win her primary. So, you know, they also seem to have a pretty good eye for where they think these people are that are going to be most in line with Trumpism or MAGA, whatever it is. But these people seem to be involved at a very granular level almost.
1: Uline is a huge donor to the club. That's been a big relationship, I think, for him. And the operatives at the Club for Growth have been doing this for a long time and are very good at kind of picking battles. But, you know, I think that there's a political class of people that helps a lot of donors kind of pick their horses. And then you have people like Mike Lindell and Byrne who are interested in being the face, interested in being the activist. So that's kind of a whole different lane to be in is kind of putting yourself out there as both the funder and the person doing the work.
0: So this week, as we're recording, CPAC, the latest version of CPAC, is occurring in Dallas. They've had Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, speak. Trump will speak at some point as we're recording this. But they had Mike Lindell on the stage, too. And I mean, I remember going to CPAC years ago, where it was always, to me anyway, because I'm an operatives kid, so I was always pretty jaundiced when it came to the activist class. It had a real strong scent of tinfoil hat stuff. But now, like, these people are the stars.
1: You know, Lindell has been a big voice when it comes to saying that the 2020 election was stolen. And I I kind of would put him and Byrne, even though they don't always kind of work on the same projects or things, but they're both people who have been able to Spend a lot on things, you know, lawsuits around the election or what they call election integrity work going up to the next election, things like that. So they've been able to spend a lot of money on this cause. And I think that you can kind of spend your way into being a hero in a lot of ways when it comes to these things. So we've seen in politics, if you have a deep pocketbook, you can wind up center stage a lot of the time.
0: You know, there seems to be one of these Trumpy conclaves every weekend, literally every weekend almost. And maybe it's the Maga Summer concert series i don't know does CPI or those kinds of groups do, do they pay for this stuff? i mean i 'm an old advance man, Maggie, so like I know good production when I see it, even if I disagree with the content. These are not low rent events. these are high production value, expensive they 've been set up over the course of probably three or four days or a week. i don't know that they really charge the people that attend these things or they do a nominal fee. so like where does all that money come from?
1: It is a lot of money you know I always tell people. When Trump raised a ton of money after he lost in 2020 into his PAC, people are like, what's he doing with that money? Well, he did give some to CPI, but he also, I said rallies, like he spends a lot of money on these big events. And CPI does do some conferences and events more for lawmakers or these Cleta Mitchell trainings, things like that. Patrick Byrne put a bunch of money into this Reawaken America tour, which has been going on, which is one of these big pro-Trump things you've seen. Don Jr. may stop there. You see the Flynn's. You see, you know, a lot of people in the Trump orbit there. So it's really a hodgepodge of people. But it's interesting because the Trump rallies were, again, almost not kind of mocked because he was drawing big crowds, but people would look down at what he was doing. And it's a powerful motivator for the base. You know, people want to come to the party and they're doing a lot to keep that Trump beat up.
0: This is one thing that I think gets overlooked. I think that Lindell, as insane as he might be, and Orban, as odious as I might find him, these people are all folks who they revel in the show, both as performers and as viewers. It has to be a show. It's not a staid academic conference on the finer points of burkean conservatism or, you know, Frederick Hayek versus John Maynard Keynes economies. They want the red meat. And it's like, as often as the alligators will show up, they'll keep throwing them skirt steak. And I think Trump fundamentally changed it. Look, there have always been incredible political performers. Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, right? They were all excellent at what they did when they hit that stage. But it was different, right? That was aspirational and inspirational, I think, most of the time. Whereas this revels in the anger and the ugliness and the resentment and the revanchist nature of whatever people are willing to say. I mean, you know, you get Orban who a couple of weeks ago was in Romania talking about race mixing. And then he goes and he says some crazy things to an American audience and they stand and they cheer. And if you stand outside some of these things, the show's on the inside, but the tailgates on the outside, right? There's trucks and there's gear and there's music and it's surpassed party into movement, I think.
1: I think there's a messaging experience or kind of putting the messaging ahead of the policy or ahead of kind of the status of an office or things like that. There's also a cultural experience, as you're pointing out. And going back to Patrick Byrne, I watched a lot of Patrick Byrne's speeches while I was talking to him for this story that we did about him. And, you know, in his speeches, he tends to warn that, well, the FBI is going to come get me after I tell you this or things like that, things that really help make people feel like insiders. You know, I think there are a lot of kind of strategies and a lot of rhetoric that people have found to be really successful at making people feel like they're part of a movement.
0: Well, and I remember a couple of years ago now being in Manchester, New Hampshire, ahead of the 2020 presidential primary, Trump was doing a rally at the big, you know, civic center there, whatever it was. And, you know, I'm not a Republican anymore, but I still code that way, right? I put my boots on, my jeans on, my vest on, and I walk around. And I've got my beard and I've got my baseball cap on and people will talk to me. And why are you here? Why do you support Donald Trump? And it didn't matter if it was the young people who'd driven over from Vermont. The middle aged couple from Manchester, the older couple who live on the seacoast, it was like they were reading off the same sheet of music. And I think that's to circle back to the CPIs of the world. I think that's what makes them so effective and so powerful is that they repeat these messages over and over and over again to every last piece of the movement and every last available adherent so that they hear it from their person their way. So that by the time a guy like me is just going to ask questions, like it's already right in the brain, right? It's crazy. It's like in the old days when people would fax out talking points every morning. And it was scary to me to see how incredibly efficient and effective it was.
1: I think that there's a widespread recognition in politics that, you know, the way we obviously communicate and the media has changed a lot over the last decade, two decades. But I think that. Trump and now, you know, pro-Trump folks and CPI and other people have really cracked the code on that in a level that others haven't, you know, whether it's talking through right wing media, whether it's talking through podcast or, you know, Trump's Twitter, there is a lot of opportunities to go straight to voters and speak if you have the right kind of avenues and bypass traditional media, which is something that I think in the past folks have been a lot more concerned about is what are they going to say?
0: Well, look, Maggie, you're fake news your fake news.
1: Exactly. I mean, we've been written off by large parts of the country, right? Which is something I get when I'm out talking to voters, which is, you know, people are in general very nice, but they don't believe that my kind of core tenant in my job is to really find out the truth and report it without any kind of favor or prejudice. That's not the way that most people see the media anymore.
0: Well, right. And probably I would say that that probably spans the breadth and depth of the country as well on any given day. Let me ask you this. When you look ahead to this November and you look ahead to 2024, do you see the CPIs of the world slowing down? Do you see them multiplying? Where do you see this movement ideology and the logistical foundation of it going? Is it growing? Is it speeding up? Is it both?
1: I think that what we're seeing right now is that, you know, Trump is the standard bearer for the Republican Party. And I think that we're seeing pro-Trump organizations kind of spring up to support people like Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor or Greene or other people that are in that MAGA movement, whatever you want to call it. And I think that with that institutional support, that just helps give things like this longevity, right? This is not kind of a spontaneous movement. This is not something that lives and dies with Trump. This is, you know, an evolution of thinking on the right that we've seen over the last decade, you know, kind of starting with the Tea Party. And it's becoming more influential. And there are more and more conservative celebrities, more people kind of speaking to this Trump ethos than we've had before. So you'd assume that that will continue, especially now that we have structures like CPI that are supporting them.
0: Well, and, you know, it was interesting. So as we're recording this, on a Friday. This past Tuesday, we had primary elections in places like Arizona and Michigan, Missouri, Washington State. And in Arizona and Michigan in particular, it does not appear that Trump's hold on the Republican Party has loosened. In fact, you could make an argument that when he gets involved, maybe much the chagrin of the Mitch McConnells of the world, his person tends to get over the line, which says to me that for all of these sort of Ron DeSantis boomlets of summer 22, the elites love him, the donors love him, the tech bros love him, whatever else is like, well, that's all well and good. But the voters are still going to one place before they go anywhere else.
1: Yeah, I'm this is a little bit of a hot take. So we live for
0: hot takes. here. <laughs> I,
1: I try and stick to my reporting. But one thing that I feel is I think that people are really obsessively tracking Trump endorsements right now. And like people have made, you know, whole graphs of like, who did Trump endorse? And like, One thing we learned from Trump is that details like that do not matter. You know, I think it's certainly helpful to get a tweet from Trump, but I think that the question I'm really asking and watching is, is this ideology being furthered through these elections? Are moderate Republicans knocking down a lot of people who say the 2020 election was stolen? Like, that's not really what we're seeing necessarily. So I think that also kind of looking at the big picture of where's the enthusiasm, what kinds of candidates are really getting put forward and succeeding is going to be important.
0: Well, Maggie, before we let you go, tell us what else it is that you're working on and what else you see out there.
1: I think that we're going to be watching this election very closely. I think that we're really curious to see where this poll watching and election observing goes. I think that To me, kind of the most significant thing we've seen happen in the couple of years is this notion that the 2020 election was, you know, fraudulent or that Trump won really take hold among a lot of people. And that's, to me, something that's very serious that we should really be seeing, you know, is that used to try and subvert or alter future elections? Where do these changes in the States, like you've mentioned, go? And so I think that that's kind of the core of what I'll be watching in these midterms, aside from, of course, you know, who wins the house and things like that.
0: Right. And tell us a little bit about Grid.
1: Yeah. So Grid, we launched in January. We are a news startup. A lot of what we're trying to do is just look at the news a little bit differently and try and give people what they really need to know. So that means a few things. We're really collaborative. We have a lot of people working on our stories. So if there's a story about an election, for example, maybe it's worth having not just someone who knows politics like me, but also a disinformation reporter and maybe someone who does healthcare if there's a COVID angle. And to do that and come out with a story that really lays out the stakes and the information that people need to know, maybe a little bit better than the daily news article that you're used to seeing.
0: Right. So where can our listeners find Grid and where can they find you online?
1: We are at Grid.News and Twitter Grid News. And I am at Maggie Severns on Twitter. And, you know, there's no paywall for the website. Everyone can come give it a read.
0: All right. Well, I hope y'all will do that. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. You can find me on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Maggie, thanks for joining me today. And everybody, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit LincolnProject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.